Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Priscilla Coleman, Ph.D., M.A., Professor of Human Development and Family Studies at Bowling Green State University, giving a talk entitled, The Relative Risk of Abortion Versus Childbirth, Psychological Morbidity and Mortality. Ms. Coleman's talk was part of the Mother and Child Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Your campus is so beautiful. I'm definitely envious. We have more of a functional looking campus and it's just been a pleasure here from the moment I stepped foot on the campus. So it's nice to be among a friendly audience too. I've been in my share of hostile uh, environments as well. So it's a pleasure. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of statistics and um, that can get a little dry, so feel free to interrupt me, ask a question or whatever. We can keep it pretty relaxed. And um, you also have the handouts with all the information, so you don't have to feel like you have to catch dates and names of authors and so forth. So um, we'll try to keep it as lively as possible. Uh, the title is The Relative Risk of Abortion Versus Childbirth, a focus on psychological morbidity and mortality. So the questions that I'll address tonight are, what risk factors for post-abortion mental health problems are the most well-established in the world literature? And there are probably hundreds of them, so we'll look at the ones that have the most empirical support. What specific negative psychological outcomes have the most empirical support in the world literatures? Uh, and then we'll look at um, the evidence regarding um, childbirth as psychologically safer than abortion. So starting um, with the risk factors, the, if, well, if we look at all of the literature on the psychology of abortion, it's kind of divided into two different uh, types of research, and it's grown extensively over the last several decades. So the research is, tends to be focused on what are the risk factors for psychological problems afterwards, what kind of sets a woman up to have the abortion experienced as a trauma, to have difficulty with it. You know, there's a wide variety of problems that women may have psychologically. And then what are the most common outcomes? So we'll begin with the risk factor data. Um, back a few years ago, I did an extensive review of the world literature, looking at studies published between 1972 and 2011, and this did yield uh, over 100 studies documenting variables that increase the risk of women experiencing post-abortion mental health problems. Um, so what are the most well-established risk factors in the, in the literatures today? Um, one is, and this these uh, numbers might be a little bit off because there have been a few more studies published and I haven't gone back into it um, too recently, but it's, you know, these are pretty close. So the, if the woman is feeling pressured or coerced by others to abort, and pressure is kind of a, a broad variable, it might be subtle pressure, feelings like your partner would prefer that you terminated all the way up to like threats of death. if. The, if the woman doesn't choose to abort. So that pressure variable is not defined exactly the same way in, in each study. If she's religious or views an abortion to be in conflict with her personal values, 
Uh, there are 10 studies that identify this as a risk factor. Um, and this one is kind of important to me in terms of my whole interest in studying abortion. Uh, when I was, I went to college early at 16 and a half, and I went to Kenyon College here in Ohio, and my roommate over Christmas break had an abortion. She came from a very religious family. There was also strong genes for mental health problems. Her dad had um, manic depression, and so there was, they did have that kind of genetic history. Um, she came, we all returned in January, and she was behaved, behaving very oddly. She actually had a psychotic break, um, and it turned out um, the, what, kind of the first hint to us that there was something really seriously wrong. We were just traveling in, in rural Ohio. We were going to get ice cream. That's about all you did back then when people were in college. It was a lot tamer, but we were going to get our ice cream, and the radio was on, and there was a, it was just like a, a, some kind of a sporting uh, news where they were announcing scores for some races or something and she said did you hear that and we said her hear what <laughs> the scores and yeah, none of us care about the scores and then she she actually heard the MC tell her parents about an abort her abortion and that was the first we heard of the abortion she was she had auditory and visual hallucinations associated and she had to leave school obviously I actually have reconnected with her I haven't actually visited with her but she's still in Ohio and I hope to see her at some point but but I just to, up, to, up until that point in my life I think you know I thought of you know I hadn't known anyone who had an abortion and then studying psychology after that everything you read indicated that abortion wasn't problematic that it was just you know a minor experience and you know women get over it and I thought I always would think about Anne's you know circumstances and how it really you know it was life-changing for her she eventually you know did get help and then you know, as far as I know she's fine mentally now or um, but anyway I mean so that that sort of planted the seed for me in terms of um, you know what is this you know and how what does it do to women and so it was always in the back of my mind when I had opportunities to study in college and I was always looking for opportunities to um, delve into this more deeply but her family was very religious very conservative um, so she had like almost all these risk factors when you start to look at them um, if, the, if she was ambivalent about the abortion, experienced any kind of decision difficulty, or had a high degree of uh, decisional distress, 21 studies. And many women are not very sure when they walk in there. So there's a lot of ambivalence that it's probably more normative to be ambivalent than to be sure about an abortion. Uh, she was committed to the pregnancy or she preferred to carry the child to term, seven studies. Belief that abortion terminates the life of a human being and or the woman experienced bonding to the fetus, six studies. And um, it might seem a little counterintuitive here. Um, you know, why would anybody terminate a life if you believe that you know, this is a human being? But actually the data indicate that about 50% of women who decide to have an abortion believe that they're terminating the life of a human being. And yet they almost feel, it's almost like a self-defense reaction. They feel like it's my life or this child's life. Um, and so, and often the thinking is compromised during a crisis state, um, moving quickly through the system and, and you know, so, um, it, you know, most of the women do believe that that's what they're doing, and yet they go forward. Um, Stephen? Mr. Vasquez, counterintuitive. The religious aspect also seems Counter counterintuitive. What, what's what's yeah. the reasoning behind that? Is it 
pressure from the family from a religious perspective, or is there something else? Well, I think it's I think it's the the belief system is you know uh, is you know personally religious. Many many times it's the family. I think in my roommate's situation, she wasn't personally religious, but she she was raised in a religious home with those values and that belief system. So it may be kind of the atmosphere of your home or the culture that you've been exposed to or many times it's personal it's a personal belief system i i've had many christian students over the years who have shared with me an abortion experience and they felt like you know trapped they didn't want anybody to know um, um and so the, i think there are a lot of reasons why it, it you know it often is a deep felt spirituality or faith um, so it, it's another one of those variables that's not too well defined either um, all right, she had pre-abortion mental health or psychiatric problems, 31 studies. This risk factor kind of bothers me because the other side, the, the, the pro-choice researchers out there will say, you know, it's not the average woman who walks into an abortion clinic who has problems with it. It's these women who already had depression or they already had um, issues, uh, you know, they came from abuse, they had all, you know, all kinds of problems in their lives and so this you know of course they're going to have psychiatric issues afterwards they had them before but now we've you know many different research groups around the country around the world literally have controlled for prior psych history and we still are able to tease out an independent effect of the abortion so I always like to talk about but you know it does tell us that these women are more vulnerable and they need extra care so if somebody comes into a an abortion provider there's you know the, the amount of counseling they get is so minimal um, and they really should be screening for people with, who have prior mental health problems to make sure that you know they're making a decision that is going to work or you know that and they're just you know treated much more sensitively so you really don't get much in, at all in terms of quality counseling at these places. Uh, the pregnant woman was an adolescent or young adult. Fifteen studies document younger women as being more at risk. And that could be because they often, it's often not their decision, it's often a parent, a boyfriend, and they often tend to hide the pregnancy so they may be having later abortions. And we know that the, the farther along in the pregnancy, the more at risk women are. So if she was in a conflicted, unsupported relationship with the father of the child, there are 24 studies. The pregnant woman experienced negative relationships with other people in her life, 28 studies. Um, character traits suggesting emotional immaturity, instability, or dif difficulties coping, 42 studies identify this as a risk factor. Indicators of poor quality abortion care, feeling misinformed, inadequate counseling, negative perceptions of staff, 10 studies. And many of the risk factors, as in my friend's life, are complexly interconnected. And they're exemplified in the following testimony that I just happened to find um, on the internet. It was uh, entitled, Everyday Hurts, posted by a woman named Claire. And this was on the site for the Experience Project, which wasn't related specifically to abortion or even reproductive issues, but it was just kind of this an almost nondescript site where people seek support. They, they, the way that they described it was where people from all walks of life connect and support each other through stories. So this is Claire's story. I found out I was pregnant at 23 in February 2011. I was in a stable, happy relationship with a good job. I was so excited. I told my friends and partner um, 
who were all, also, also thrilled. My mom found out and started talking about finances, work, etc. After my first scan, I went to surprise her with the photo. She tried to hide it and told me to put it away so no one could see. I felt like my baby was unwelcome. I realized how embarrassed she was of me, so I told myself that an abortion was the solution. On the morning of the operation at 12 weeks, the doctor gave me a scan and unfortunately I saw the screen, which is the image now stuck in my head every day. For the past year I've cried every day and I find it difficult to look at a baby or a pregnant woman without my eyes filling up. It feels like my stomach twists and something hurts inside. As for the really crazy part, I did a pregnancy test every week after the abortion for nearly eight months in hopes it would be positive, even though I knew it was impossible. If nothing else, I hope this makes others who have had an abortion realize that they're not on their own. And to those thinking about it, I would say that if there's a part of you that wants to keep the baby, this is not an option. So 40 years of research has shown that when specific physical, psychological, demographic, and situational factors are operative in women's lives, they are at a significantly increased risk of experiencing mental health problems following abortion. Even the abortion doctors agree on risk factors. A relatively recent textbook titled Management of Unintended and Abnormal Pregnancy Comprehensive Care by Paul and colleagues lists many risk factors in a chapter on counseling. So in this, you know, this book that is written specifically for doctors in training who will be, you know, doing abortions, um, these were the, there are many risk factors outlined, commitment and attachment to the pregnancy, perceived coercion to have the abortion, significant ambivalence about the abortion decision, putting great effort into keeping the abortion a secret for fear of stigma, advanced stage of pregnancy, pre-existing experience of trauma, past or present sexual, physical, or emotional abuse, unresolved past losses, and perception of abortion as a loss, fetal abnormality or other medical indications for the abortion, intense guilt and shame before the abortion an existing emotional disorder or mental illness prior to the abortion, appraisal of abortion is extremely stressful before it occurs, expecting depression, severe grief or guilt, and regret after the abortion, belief that abortion is the same act as killing a newborn infant, and lack of emotional support and receiving criticism from significant people in their lives. The American Psychological Association also acknowledged risk factors in their APA, you know, this report that came out in 2008, which overall I thought they did a horrible job and it was very biased. And I've done being a member of APA, that's been a long time ago that I pulled my membership, but they actually asked me to, I was sent the, the paper. I wasn't on the, asked to be on the task force, even though I had published a lot, um, but I, they did ask me to be a reviewer. So I was going to Portugal actually, and I, I brought it on the plane. I figured oh, I'll start reading it on the plane because I had like one month it was an 80-page document, a summary of, you know, supposedly of all the literature. And I remember opening it up, and they had left out like 40 studies. They had a clever way to like just not bother reviewing because they had different categories of studies, and then they they were able. The way it was just very crafty, and so they eliminated all these European studies. And I literally thought, okay, I'm gonna have a heart attack. I'm gonna be on the plane, and there's not gonna be any, <laughs> not gonna be any rescue here. So I better put it away till I get on the ground at least. It was horrible, and my first instinct was to say, I'm not. And when you decide to include the literature, I'll I'll help you out. But then I thought they're not gonna care if I. They're gonna be glad that I declined. So I thought. 
I just really have to do this. And so I, you know, I did the, the really involved review of it and others did as well. One was David Ferguson from New Zealand, who's actually very pro-choice and outspoken about being pro-choice, but his data is showing that women are harmed by abortion. So he and I started corresponding because we were both pissed since we had, <laughs> we, had, um, we had described like, you know, all the problems and they ignored it. And there was someone else, Rachel McNair, who had been president of Feminist for Life, and she was pretty mad. She wasn't as mad as David and I. We were, so I was like bonding with David Ferguson. He ended up being my outside reviewer for tenure and for promotion to full professor. We respect each other's work. And then he, he actually was friends with Alan Kasdan, who was president of the APA at the time. And so we decided we were going to write a letter, a petition letter. And so we went back and forth in terms of the actual wording. Because, uh, But anyway, we finally agreed, and then we got like, five more people to sign on. We put all of our studies together and you know, said basically there's 50 studies here that show and all we got was this nice letter. And he had written a book with Kasdan, you know, and it was, and they did, it meant nothing. They just, a polite letter, thanks for your input, you know, and that was it. So it was very frustrating. And, and, and what the, probably the worst thing, I probably shouldn't go on a tangent talking about this report, but what was, what was so, what was so really horrible about it is their final conclusion, supposedly reviewed all this literature of hundreds of studies, boiled it down to one study that was published, um, the Gilchrist study published in England in 1995. They decided that was the only good one. And so their final conclusion was based on what um, was concluded by the Gissler group. And that study had major issues. They had only a 35% um, retention rate or, you know, so they, they had lost most of their sample. It was horrible. And so anyway, I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. And, and it had so much power because it was the American Psychological Association. They're going to conclude. It was devastating to think they're coming out with this definitive report. You know, we don't have to study it now. We know abortion safe for women was basically the plan. Um, and so then I do a lot of legal work as an expert in these cases. And I thought, you know, how, what am I going to do on the stand? They're going to say, uh, well, <laughs> Dr. Coleman, you're just probably, you know, one person, one researcher who's probably a religious nut anyway, you know, and, um, and, you know, the American Psychological Association with their team of experts has reviewed the literature. So I knew I had to do something. And that's when I decided to do a meta-analysis. And I'll talk about that. That's the paper where that Stephen found because a, a meta-analysis is a quantitative review. It's more systematic. So that was what I did. And so, um, but anyway, the, the one part of the, the, to get back on track, the one part of the APA paper that the, it was undeniable. I mean, they would have craftily um, distorted the, the risk factor data as well, but they couldn't. Even the abortion providers are acknowledging these. So they had to acknowledge the factors that place women at risk. And so they did. They identified the wantedness of the pregnancy, um, if there's pressure from others, opposition to the abortion from partners, family or friends, lack of social support, commitment to the pregnancy, ambivalence, low perceived ability to cope. So these risk factors are, you know, everywhere. You, they're undeniable. It doesn't matter where you are politically. It's you, the, we know who's at risk. And despite the availability of this strong research support, abortion providers rarely, if ever, routinely screen for risk factors and counsel at risk. They do now have to, uh, um, in South Dakota, it's put, was part of the uh, 1217 bill that Dr. Shooping and I have both been involved in, um, but they, Planned Parenthood caved on the risk factor 
claim we're still it's still being litigated the final claim that's being litigated um, is that that bill required that women who seek an abortion in South Dakota now have to or we'll, 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 once they're done litigating it I mean it's been Planned Parenthood um, you know it, uh, filed an appeal and you know so it's going all it's all over the place right now but um, the last claim is that you know, women will have to go hear both sides and go to a crisis pregnancy center in addition to going to an abortion provider before they will be allowed to have an abortion in South Dakota and the we the the um, the ruling or the, the they basically the risk factor stuff they they're not um, fighting that anymore and they're not fighting the 72-hour waiting period so but they will fight this probably to the Supreme Court because they you know, if it goes that far uh, they don't want women going to hear the other side from a crisis pregnancy center so so the information on the risks is kind of gradually getting out there um, the whole other area of research is on the psychological outcomes. So what are the most common consequences revealed in the literature? And these include depression, substance abuse, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and behavior. A minimum of 20% of women who, if you look at all of the findings, a minimum of 20% of women who abort suffer serious, prolonged negative psychological consequences. And I personally think that's kind of conservative. I'm not sure we've measured all the possible ways that they might be impacted. Abortion is further associated with a higher risk for negative psychological outcomes when compared with unintended pregnancy carried to term. And the data indicate that risk for long-term psychological injury is considerably higher with abortion than with other forms of perinatal loss. There are some really good studies that came out of Norway. Anne Brone studied women who had a natural loss, a miscarriage, or a stillbirth, and women who had an elective abortion followed them for uh, reported findings at two years and five years. Um, and for the most part, the studies indicate that initially, the women who experience a miscarriage or stillbirth are similar to women who have an abortion in terms of the rates of psychological problems. But by five years out, those that had the miscarriage, um, the involuntary loss, were doing fine, whereas the women who had the abortions were still suffering at the rates they were initially. So there wasn't much change over the five-year period. Um, Abortion-related psychological problems may also increase a person's chance of engaging in self-harm, even if not motivated by suicidal thoughts and uh, of becoming a victim of an accident or violence. Um, this is just some information about a study that's ongoing that we're working on. Um, we've, uh, the data collection has involved contacting um, CareNet providers all over the country and asking the directors to send out information on the study. It's been a real process to get that sample up there, um, but we now have close to 1,100 and there's 200 survey items. Um, we have an, an interesting comparison group that isn't in the literature, you know, as of yet. The comparison group is women who went to an abortion provider almost had an abortion and changed their mind. And that's, that's an important control group because unfortunately, a lot of the studies out there compare women who had like a wanted pregnancy, um, or even, an, even if it's an unwanted pregnancy, there's some women who would never have you know, considered abortion and, and they may be different um, in systematic ways from the women who choose an abortion. So by selecting this group, when we actually walk into the door of a provider and change their mind, they're pretty similar, you would expect, in terms of their lifestyles and their demographics and that kind of stuff. So, um, 
Uh, in terms of this study, demographically, the women are quite similar to the general population in the U.S. in terms of education, income, ethnicity, marital status. 67% had one abortion, 19 had two, and 14% had three or more. We actually have a couple that had like over 15 abortions in their lifetime within our uh, sample. And we have more late-term ones than I expected um, to find as well. So here's just some of the preliminary findings on some items that are relevant. Uh, one item was I tended to take greater risks after the abortion because my personal safety was less important to me. 30% strongly agreed, 25% agreed, and among these women for 77% that lasted three years or more. In response to the item, I experienced bouts of extreme sadness from the abortion. 58% strongly agreed, 22% agreed, and for 89%, it lasted three years or more. In response to the item, I felt like part of me died during the abortion. 55% strongly agreed, 24% agreed, and among these women, for 91%, it lasted three years or more. In response to the item, I relied on alcohol and our drugs to escape troubling post-abortion emotions. 27% strongly agreed, 23% agreed, and among these women, it was 72% that reported that it lasted three years or more. In response to the item, life felt like it wasn't worth living because of the abortion. 26% strongly agreed, 19% agreed, and it lasted six, um, three years or more for 68%. Another item, I thought about taking my life because I had the abortion. 20% strongly agreed, 14% agreed, and among these women, for 58%, this lasted three years or more. Another item, I made realistic attempts to take my life because of the abortion. 8% strongly agreed and 5% agreed, and these attempts um, you know, lasted or took place within, for 52% um, for three years or more. And then we also had many open-ended kinds of questions within the database. So um, when asked what was the hardest aspect of the abortion, these were some of the comments we got. Um, the abortionist never spoke a word to me. It was though we were not even human. The only words I ever heard from him were these. I think that was the biggest one we've ever done. The whole thing was absolutely shocking and painful in so many ways. I had to numb myself after the fact. I tried so hard to pretend it never happened. The father and I made a pact that we would never speak of it again. We kept that pact for 18 years, but the consequences were deadening. Another woman said, I had to shut down my emotions completely. Only a few short years before I longed for and dreamt of being on my own and having a child, someone I could love and cherish after all the abusive people in my life. The abortion experience made me believe that I was unworthy of ever having a child. I was overcome by the incredible amount of self-loathing and sank into a deep depression that lasted for years. Almost immediately after the abortion, I developed an infection and secretly wished I would die from it. I was uh, prescribed an antibiotic and I survived. The hardest part is reliving it. I woke up during the procedure, so to this day, on random days, I remember the loud vacuum like sounds um, and grotesque sucking pressure on my insides. This memory replays itself in my head over and over again to the point of near vomit. Another woman said, the feeling of loss. I longed for my baby and through the act of abortion, I did something that's completely irreversible. So here are a few more recent studies uh, from around the globe. Now they're not too recent, but um, Rousset and colleagues in 2011 
conducted a study. It had 86 women, but what was interesting here is they compared chemical and surgical abortion, and they were recruited from family planning centers and two hospitals in southern France. At six weeks post-abortion, 20% had high acute stress and 38% had actual post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, bereavement, grief, and PTSD scores were significantly higher among women who had a chemical abortion compared to surgical. And the researchers concluded these, these results evidenced the complexity of coping with abortion and emphasized the need to develop specific support as well as preventive strategies. Um, and this was consistent with earlier work indicating the chemical abortion was more potentially more traumatizing. Slade and colleagues in 98 found that compared to those who had surgical abortions, those who had chemical abortions rated it as more stressful and experienced more disruption in their lives. Ashok and colleagues in 2005 reported 47% of women undergoing a chemical abortion experienced a significant decline in self-esteem two to three weeks following the abortion. And with surgical abortion, it was 39%. So still very high rates for the surgical abortion, but um, much higher for chemical. And then Kelly and colleagues reported women who underwent chemical abortion had higher PTSD intrusion scores, nightmares, the unwanted thoughts and images, than women who had surgical abortions. They also reported 47% of the women who underwent chemical abortions indicated they wouldn't choose it again, and 53% felt the procedure was worse than expected. So there are a number of reasons why we might expect the chemical abortion to be potentially more serious in terms of women's mental health afterwards, um, more debilitating. One reason is the participatory role of the woman. Um, she's directly responsible for the abortion, and this may exacerbate guilt and other negative self-directed thoughts and feelings. It also requires the woman to be more alert and involved during the process, making it impossible for her to distance psychologically from what's happening. The woman may see the expelled fetus, and the woman is more likely alone and without emotional support at the time of the abortion. Um, and then before I move on, also her house may, you know, the women may come to associate, you know, their bathroom, you know, part of their, their house where, you know, where they, you know, that's where you relax and your comfort. Now it becomes associated with the death of the baby. Um, as researchers Slade and colleagues noted in 1998, one of the main differences between these two methods of termination is the conscious and um, is the consciousness and participation of the patient in the medical procedure in a process that involves blood, pain, and death. Um, and there's a study that, um, derived from data from the Anhui Birth Defects and Child Development Cohort Study published by Huang and colleagues in 2012. This took place in China. It was a nice-sized sample. Um, nearly half had experienced at least one abortion. Women with a history of induced abortion a year or more prior were 49% more likely to experience depression 
and 114% more likely to experience anxiety in the first trimester of a later pregnancy compared to women who had not experienced an abortion after there were controls for maternal education, income, place of residence, and BMI were applied. And there were no differences between women with and without a history of spontaneous abortion. Um, we published a study that's kind of similar back in 2002, and it was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and we had women who had um, a prior history of abortion, so, and we were looking at their substance abuse during a current pregnancy. So basically comparing women who were having a baby, who had ha some had had an abortion, some had not. And we found 10 times the marijuana usage, usage among the women who had an abortion history. So there haven't been a lot of studies, including marijuana, but um, you know, so the, and the idea there may be that you know, the being pregnant again and the reminders of the pregnancy and experiencing the pregnancy from the perspective of planning to have the baby and paying attention to probably to the development information. And so this, there may, for many women, it may be the first time they're really aware of what um, they did. And so it was in the marijuana was, you know, an escape. And, and really, if you look at all of the literature on outcomes with abortion, the strongest effects are related to substance abuse, alcohol and drugs. And that's likely because it's so many women self-medicate. There's so much shame and they don't want to share the experience, but they need relief. And so there's very high rates of substance abuse associated with it. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the meta-analysis. Um, uh, this was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry. And I looked at studies between 19, this was in defense of the APA report. I knew it, and by the grace of God, it got published in this journal. I have no idea really how that happened. I figured I'd shoot high, because it was one of the top psychiatric journals in the world. So they had an honest editor, you know, I guess. I'm really fortunate that it, that it was published. And I um, looked at studies published between 1995 and 2009. Um, and so basically, for those of you that aren't, may not be familiar, a meta-analysis is a quantitative review of the literature. So by systematically combining the numerical results from many high-quality studies addressing the same basic question, and the question here, is there an association between abortion and mental health, very reliable results are are produced and studies are weighted statistically and meta-analysis offers a logical more objective alternative to traditional reviews so if you have a review if you have a paper include every then all studies are not created equal when you do a meta-analysis the larger studies are going to get more weight and there was absolutely no reason why the APA couldn't have conducted their own meta-analysis other than if they did then the, the results would would be not what they wanted to publicize so um, Anyway, um, and an overview here, there were 22 studies that were included, 36 adjusted odds ratios were, were combined, and the, the bottom line result was 81, that women who had an abortion experience had an 81% higher risk for mental health problems of various forms compared to women who did not have an abortion. And this is the data from the meta-analysis. And it just, I know you can't see it, but um, you can see the pattern. If there really wasn't anything systematic going on here, then all of those horizontal lines would be kind of hovering around the middle uh, vertical line, but they're shifted to that first quadrant to the right. So that's a systematic pattern there. And we're seeing that abortion does affect women. And, and that's across every study that met the criteria, um, 
for inclusion, and I don't, I don't have a slide on that, but I only included studies that had controls for those third variables, studies that had at least 100 um, participants, and studies that had a control group. Um, so, um, and it, you know, it really included the, the best evidence out there. And they've been trying to find a study that I missed, of course, you know, and that, there was one, there was a challenge about one with somebody and I was, and I had a reason, I don't know, it's been a few years back, but I explained why I couldn't include it. I didn't have the new numbers that needed to be present to put them into the meta-analysis. And, um, and so I was, could defend that. And so, um, anyway, and then I also uh, did another statistic that's very, uh, helpful here, the population attributable risk statistic. Um, and it's derived from the uh, odds ratios. You create a pooled odds ratio. And so basically what this tells us definitively is that nearly 10% of the incidence of mental health problems is directly attributable to abortion. You wipe out abortion in our society and we'll have 10% fewer cases of uh, mental illness. So let's look a little bit at the psychological benefits of motherhood. In contrast, there are a number of studies that have shown positive psychological characteristics, including an increased sense of control, feelings of serenity, self-esteem, empathy, ego resiliency, which is the capacity for flexibility and resourcefulness in coping with stressors, and assertiveness associated with motherhood. According to Ellison, frequent close contact inherent in the daily care of a young child results in expanded maternal brain activity and neural growth. So you'll be smarter if you have a baby or two. I don't know if that means like it's multiplicative. So if you have 10 babies, you're really smart or I'm not sure. Um, when comparing 248 British women um, experiencing a planned pregnancy to 182 women experiencing an unplanned pregnancy, Dave in 2005 found that 87% of the women who planned their pregnancies and 79% of the women who didn't reported feeling pleased or overjoyed just prior to delivery. They were all first-time mothers residing in lower socioeconomic areas, so even without lots of benefits, you know, in terms of support. Um, this is my favorite. In case you have to go to a shower, there's uh, some cookies you can make. Um, if women breastfeed, um, there are additional benefits as lactation produces the antidepressant chemical oxytocin. And studies suggest lactating mothers are less tense and become bored less easily than their non-lactating peers. The hormonal activity and neural circuitry associated with childbirth and lactation reduces depression and anxiety. And Carter, and I'm not going to even try to pronounce the co-author there, Anvas Moburn, oh, I did try, leading authorities on oxytocin have provided scientific evidence suggesting that the brain becomes more receptive to the impact of oxytocin after the first heavy dose during labor and breastfeeding. So the hormones of pregnancy and early motherhood apparently facilitate formation of subsequent strong personal relationship bonds, so at the very physiological level. But what about postpartum depression? Uh, the incidence rate for postpartum depression is between 3.5 and 11%. However, this form of depression tends to be less serious than major depression, which has been shown to afflict 20% of women after abortion. Moreover, postpartum depression is very unlikely to precipitate suicide. Um, so looking at some of the data to indicate that childbirth is protective against death due to suicide, Gissler and colleagues in 2005 reported the annual suicide rate 
for women of reproductive age to be 11.3 uh, per 100,000, whereas the rate was about half, only 5.9 per 100,000 with birth, and it was a startling 34.7 per 100,000 following abortion. And several other studies have revealed even lower rates of suicide in the year following birth when compared to non-postpartum samples. A couple of these studies in, in the U.S., the postpartum suicide rate was found to be only 1.4 per 100,000. In the United Kingdom, it was as low as 0.5 per 100,000. And then a study in England and, well, studies in England and Wales, for example, the Appleby study from 1991 reported in the British Medical Journal indicated that pregnant women are 120th as likely to commit suicide when compared to non-pregnant women of childbearing age. And Appleby concluded motherhood seems to protect against suicide. Um, I just want to kind of venture off a little bit and talk about the psychological effects of choosing to terminate in the presence of a fetal anomaly. So this is in situations where uh, most typically the, the pregnancy was wanted, the woman may not, you know, would never considered abortion until they find out that they're carrying a child that is not likely to live or has some very significant um, physical problem. And I just reviewed all this literature to speak a, a month ago at um, the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, and I was actually hadn't given it as much attention as the elective abortion, thinking it's you know it's so rare. I, I just really didn't hit my radar scope until they asked that I review it and, and talk about this. But it's really not a small number. About three to four percent of pregnancies are affected by a significant anomaly. Um, so termination of pregnancy for fetal anomaly does end one life and carries serious potential to harm the parents involved. Women are often advised to terminate based on the assumption that continuing a pregnancy when the fetus is likely to suffer from ill effects and or not live very long leads to unnecessary suffering and expense, and termination is often pitched as the most humane option for women facing a life-altering diagnosis of fetal anomaly. So they're made to feel like they're, they'd be selfish almost to continue. In most cases of um, termination for fetal anomaly, the pregnancy was wanted, is advanced, and the process of maternal-fetal bonding is likely to be operative. As a result, the decision to terminate may create considerable dissonance, particularly among women for whom abortion conflicts with personally held religious or other belief systems. Uh, worldwide, a substantial body of research conducted over the past several decades has revealed that women who choose to terminate a pregnancy due to fetal anomaly are at risk for serious prolonged mental health problems. Um, I don't think I have a slide here on Down syndrome, but I also just wanted to mention that mostly what I'm talking about here is when there was, a, there was like a lethal diagnosis, but um, now women are getting information on lots of other conditions, and 92% of pregnancies when it's a woman is carrying a Down syndrome child are now terminated, 92%. So, uh, grief reactions occurring in the context of termination of fetal anomaly have been identified as having a resemblance to other forms of perinatal loss. However, as noted by Lafarge and colleagues in 2013, ending a pregnancy for fetal anomaly bears an additional moral component in that the parents choose to terminate a pregnancy. Similarly, based on interviews of 30 women, McCoy noted the grief mirrored that of spontaneous pregnancy loss, but the responsibility for the decision-making complicated and tended to intensify the grief. 
a participant in a study by McCoy voiced her feelings of not fitting in well with miscarriage, stillbirth, and abortion support groups. She said, I resented being lumped in with the miscarriage group. Our loss was much further along and involved the complexities of making the decision to end a wanted pregnancy. I really hate being lumped in with the abortion crowd because it implies our baby was unwanted and unloved, and apparently the stillbirth crowd won't have us. Uh, when describing women in the study, McCord noted, they silence themselves or refer, refer to their experience in vague and euphemistic terms, rejecting the language of abortion due to its connotations. Kestering and colleagues in 2009 reported that the neural activation underlying the grief associated with abortion for fetal anomaly was similar to that of physical pain. A participant in Copenhagen and colleagues 2013 study explained quote after the abortion came tears sorrow emptiness life was turned completely upside down like the rug had been pulled from under your feet everything you dreamt of had to be buried and you had to start planning life all over again I no longer live and it'll never happen to us glass bubble I've learned that the world is incredibly unfair the experience has left me bitter angry and envious of others Corin Romp and colleagues in 2007, these are really high rates here, reported that 44% of women who terminated due to fetal anomaly were experiencing high levels of post-traumatic stress at four, mo four months post-termination and 28% exhibited symptoms of depression. The level of traumatic stress was 10 times higher um, than following normal delivery. And in a Turkish study, 62% of the women surveyed had PTSD symptoms, 65% had depression symptoms following termination of pregnancy for fetal anomaly. Kestering and colleagues found traumatic stress levels at two to seven years post-termination were comparable to levels measured at only 14 days after the procedure. And the researchers concluded the results of this study of psychological long-term sequelae after termination of pregnancy reveal a degree of enduring post-traumatic stress response, which is still detectable several years after the event and underlies the severity of trauma induced in a woman by termination of pregnancy due to fetal malformation. Following termination of pregnancy for fetal anomaly, Davies and colleagues, 2005, found post-traumatic stress disorder rates at 67%, 50%, and 41% six weeks, six months, and 12 months later. Emotional stress rates were 53%, 46%, and 43% at six weeks, six months, and 12 months. Depression rates, 39, 30, and 32% and grief rates were, were reported to decline over time with rates of 47%, 31%, and 27% at six weeks, six months, and 12 months. So there is an option um, these days though. So look, you wanna sort of look at um, people who choose life for a child with a fetal anomaly. Studies addressing the psychological experiences of women who chose not to terminate despite the bias in the medical community toward doing so are indicating that these women experience less suffering than women who terminate their pregnancies. In a study by Jan Ver and colleagues in 2012 on the experiences of parents who lived with a child suffering from trisomy 13 or 18, the results clearly indicated the majority of parents felt that their families were strengthened and enriched by the experience since the birth and frequently by the death of their children, irrespective of how long the children survived. 
Lanthrop and uh, Van de Voos published two studies in 2011 based on <laughs> a narrative analysis of women who continued their pregnancies affected by a lethal fetal anomaly. The results indicated that women expressed love for their infants and they deeply valued time spent interacting with and caring for them. Women also reported that the experience resulted in personal growth in the form of increased compassion, faith, and strength with significant life lessons derived from choosing against termination. Finally, women's experiences were directly enhanced by the affirmation of their motherhood received by the professionals caring for them. And so kind of now looks at some of the current challenges and future research directions. Um, first future research directions, the, the lack of empirically validated treatments has left many women without much hope for relief if they experience post-abortion psychological problems, with the APA and other professional organizations denying that there's any potential for abortion to cause trauma to women. We are like light years away from coming up with counseling protocols and you know, mental health um, plans for assisting women. So first we have to get the acknowledgement that there's a problem. Um, so an essential future goal is therefore to develop these treatment protocols, test them, and publish the results. Data collection from significant individuals in women's lives and our behavioral assessments will enhance our efforts to assess the complexity of women's experiences because right now it's mostly self-report. There's some record-based data, but a lot of it just comes from directly from women. So it would validate their experiences getting more information from people in their lives. Um, did I get all those? Um, no. Um, researchers need to conduct more substantive interviews with geographically diverse samples in order to more fully understand the depth and breadth of experiences. And short-term studies are potentially misleading because women may suppress their emotions until other life events such as a birth trigger or delayed reaction. There's a need for studies following women over many years to more fully understand how abortion experiences intersect with other life events to impact women's quality of life. And it was an interesting, it was a small scale study, but it was published by um, Dikessa Slade and Haywood. Um, the title was Long-Term Follow-Up of Emotional Experiences After Termination of Pregnancy, Women's Views at Menopause. Um, the authors reported that many women were still affected by an abortion that had occurred decades earlier. Women discussed menopause as a vulnerable time that had made it increasingly difficult to manage their feelings about their past abortion. As one participant noted, it's only since the menopause has come on that I actually feel really guilty again. I mean, I sometimes sit on my own and I've cried because I feel guilty, but I've no noticed that has happened more obviously since I've gone into the menopause. The authors concluded the work provides insight into the very long-term consequences of this procedure. Participants stress the value of being able to discuss the abortion with a neutral third party to be able to voice some of the thoughts, confusion, and sadness some had carried alone for so long for fear of repercussion or judgment. It's, it's likely that women may benefit from the availability of post-abortion counseling services, not necessarily just in the immediate aftermath, but at different points after the procedure. And I'd like to share the story of Stacy Zally. She, um, her life ended tragically at age 20. As a result of pressure from her abortion, from her uh, boyfriend, Stacy underwent an abortion. Shortly afterwards, she asked for psychiatric help. 
but she ended therapy after only three months. Sadly, after several suicide attempts, she hung herself in her room. Her parents didn't uh, know about the abortion until after her death, and in her suicide note, she expressed desire to be reunited with her unborn baby, who she had named Brittany Lee. And this was, I know about Stacy's situation. There's information on her case. Uh, her father actually is George Zally, and he owns a, a big supermarket chain in Cherry Hill, New Jersey area. And he is now kind of, uh, some other people are managing the grocery stores, and he devotes himself full time to this a nonprofit that's very information oriented. Um, he's not, doesn't consider himself pro-life. He just is pro-information. Um, and the trial lasted, um, it was horrible, lasted six weeks total. I was on the stand for three full days and I had the uh, Stephen Brigham, I don't know if you're familiar with him, he's one of the, um, I don't know what that, the term that comes to mind is sleazy, I don't know if I should say, but he's one, he, he's one of the, one of the um, providers that is really looked down upon in, among the mainstream abortion providers. So he's really tangential and he's been in the news a lot. He was dragging women across state lines to give them late-term abortions. He's lost his medical license in several states. And so I really, I'm in the, I'm, I was on the stand. I literally had to keep flying back to Philadelphia because I had to teach my classes. And, uh, and he was glaring at me throughout the, you know, I kept moving so that he was like straight in my, you know. Um, but anyway, I mean, his, his, um, his process was, was sickening. He had, part of my responsibility was to look at the information Stacy was provided with prior to having the abortion. And he had what he called a fact sheet. And literally on that sheet it, that, that Stacy read, it said it's common for women to have 20 or more abortions. And I, I had to like say something to him in the hall, like on the breaks. And I was like, how could you even say that? You know that nobody has that. And then, and then he said, it doesn't matter what you write. Women come in, they want abortions. They don't care what you say. And I said, well, why don't you try telling the truth once in a while? Now, I mean, it was, you couldn't even talk to this guy, but I was just like, I could not believe that the lies, blatant lies that, and it also said that, she also read that um, women who have abortions are likely to feel a, a sense of new hope and happiness and more control of their life after an abortion. So there was like utter deception and poor girl just really wanted to have her baby, just wanted to be, wanted to get married to the father and wanted to, you know, she wanted to be a teacher and to have the baby. And so that her family didn't know anything about it. And the, the boyfriend and the boyfriend's father took, him, took her to Brigham's facility. And this case dragged on from forever, it felt like. And she died in 2002, and the, finally it was settled like in 2010. And it ended up um, that uh, our side kind of won, but it was, there was a gag order on the amount of, uh, and I doubt that Mr. Zally recouped all of his expense from, because this guy was like putting all the clinics in his mother's name, you know, and he was bankrupt. He had, I think, 13 facilities in the Northeast, and so. This is still a horrible, sad story. The personal impact of abortion is often profound human suffering with the most serious cases like that of Stacy's Alley and telling lies full of potential, needlessly ending long before they should. 
continued denial and distortion of the literature by abortion clinic personnel, the media, and professional organizations leaves hundreds of thousands of women untreated like Stacy. Each day, a significant number similarly find the shame, loss, and depression of abortion simply incompatible with life. And for one of the cases that I'm on with South Dakota, we cal calculated that approximately at least 40 suicides each year are directly attributable to abortion. So here's We Care to the Rescue. Um, back several years ago, I founded We Care thinking that we've got to get this information out there. You can't rely on, I, I guess I naively thought that once we published in peer-reviewed journals that the information would have to make its way out to the public. But all that happens is these studies are buried in the journals and nobody ever hears about them. And then if the other side publishes a study, it gets blasted and across, you know, the, in every possible newspaper across the world. And so the, the idea with We Care was um, to provide uh, an, an opportunity or a, you know, a, a base to, to um, provide summaries of the, of the scientific literature. Um, um, you know, we have, to, we have to take documents like the APA report and the Royal College of Psychiatrists did a, an even craftier job a few years later, and their document was like 250 pages. Um, they had all kind of done like presentations critiquing, you know, that report, and I wrote a critique, and they, they at least opened it to anybody who wanted to provide um, feedback, and they um, made a little more effort to incorporate some of the feedback, but they had like a whole bunch of studies they dismissed as not having usable data. What does that mean? And everybody just kind of bought it. Okay, no usable data. Well, why were these studies, you know, 50 studies published in uh, peer-reviewed journals if they don't have any usable data? You know, so that was just this, the same thing. So part of that, what I've done in recent years is to, when a study comes out, I try to critique it fast and then post it as a news um, report, like on the website. But I honestly have, to, with you know, a full-time job and all the other things I do, it just mostly we care kind of just sits there and with potential. Um, it is a 501c3, so we can accept donations, and that I was able to do that through legal Zoom, which because I was going to afford a lawyer, I was going to spend money on a lawyer and really didn't have it, and so it was like two thousand dollars. I had a template, and it, so it definitely it's tax exempt. It's like ready to go. It's just that I, I don't think it's really in my skill set to be a director of a nonprofit. So just hoping that God might bless this somehow, and because uh, we really do need to um, encourage more active um, research collaboration. We need to get the information out there, and we really need to train experts for litigation. There isn't like a, a body that does that. Um, so those are the kind of the goals there. And then um, two of the affiliates are in this room. Stephen and, and Martha are part of the, are among the affiliates. And so yeah, these were the, these are the goals, the information dissemination, research collaboration, consultation, and then response to the current research activities. Professional development, hopefully someday we'll have online tutorials and seminars, grant writing, publishing workshops, <laughs> lofty ambitions here, maybe even a journal, who knows. Uh, foster dialogue and encourage media coverage. And so there is a lot of information posted if you want to check out the website. 
Uh, the risks for post-abortion mental health problems are then generally well-established in the professional literature, and the biggest challenge before us is to convince the mainstream to approach the scientifically derived information objectively to develop evidence-based laws and service protocols. With knowledge, commitment, effective organization, and compassion, we can assist professionals as they endeavor to empower women, and here's my favorite slide, uh, to make healthy decisions <laughs> for themselves and their families. So thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.